We're going to finish the chapter this morning. So verse 35, Mark chapter 10, of course, the second book of the New Testament, the second gospel. We've been over the last several months doing a verse-by-verse study in Mark's gospel. And over the last couple of weeks, as we journey through this gospel, Jesus has been teaching his disciples as well as us, because this is God's inspired word that is for you and for me this morning. And Jesus, in chapters 9 and 10, has been teaching us on how we should live, that is, um, how we should live according to what is important and the priorities concerning the kingdom of God. And as we've gone over these teachings, and we'll continue to as we finish chapter 10 this morning, we're going to see that what Jesus teaches us doesn't always make sense according to what the world teaches or what our flesh desires. But what we're going to see that as Jesus continues saying that if you want to be great in the kingdom, then you be the servant of all. We have already touched on in the previous chapter that we must receive the kingdom of God as a child. Not that we're to be childish, but we're to be childlike. To come to the Lord in humility, to come to the Lord in simplicity, recognizing our need for a Savior. We don't have what it takes to save ourselves. I'm reminded of what the Apostle Paul would write in the book of Colossians chapter 2, that he said, just as you've received Christ Jesus the Lord, you are to also walk with him. So you receive the Lord in coming in childlike uh, faith, in childlike simplicity, in humility of heart. And that's the way that we are to continue in that mindset and attitude as we walk with the Lord. We saw last time that Jesus' response last week to the rich young ruler. He told the rich young ruler, all that you have, give to the poor, and you'll have treasures in heaven. Again, you'll be great in the kingdom. Take up your cross and follow after me. Jesus was essentially saying to him, it doesn't matter how rich you are or how young you are or how successful you might be. You will end up in poverty if you let the things of this world and in this life dominate you. If you let your possessions possess you. And that is true with you and with me. Whether you got a lot of possessions like this rich young ruler did or whether you got few possessions, that those things ought not to be a priority in your life. Have priority over your love for the Lord. And so here our Lord continuing saying that the last shall be first and the first last and those who give and and move out now concerning the kingdom will enjoy much both, both presently and in the life to come eternally. You're going to be rewarded. You may not be recognized in this world, but God sees your heart and your desire to serve him and live for him, and he will reward you. And so what we're going to see as we continue on this theme of greatness in the kingdom of God. So let's pick up our text at verse 35 as we read. Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him saying, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. And so let's pray before we continue on. Father, we do ask that you would just continue to, Lord, press upon us, um, Lord, just your presence and your love, and Lord, now teach us. And I pray that we would be settled in our seats, that we would remember to have our cell phones turned off or down, and, and uh, we'd be free from distractions while we just got a few minutes to hear from you, knowing that as we read the Bible here, as we read the Scriptures, this is inspired, this is you speaking to us. We want to know how to be great in the kingdom. We want to continue to to be sensitive to to being open to what you have to say because this is truth to us. And so we we make application uh, this morning in our lives 
as we read these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So James and John, we know that they're a couple of Jesus' disciples. They are brothers, fishermen from the Sea of Galilee. And in chapter 3 of Mark's Gospel, we saw that Jesus changed their names to the Sons of Thunder. Now, why did Jesus change their names to the Sons of Thunder? Probably because that James and John, they were really intense when they were first called of the Lord. They were kind of harsh. There was a village, we know from the gospel accounts, that did not receive the ministry of Jesus. And so it was James and John that encouraged the Lord, hey, why don't you call down fire from heaven on this village and consume the people? Real nice, James and John. And so they were really intense. So it it was them that got this nickname. Of course, John, we saw in our previous study a couple weeks ago, he was trying to forbid a man from casting out demons because he was not one of the disciples, even though that man did it in the name of Jesus. And it was Jesus that said, John and the rest of you guys, leave him alone. If he who is not against us is still for me. So James and John, they were hard on people. They were intense when they were first walking with the Lord. But as the Lord was ministering to them and as the Holy Spirit would grow them and and as they matured in the things of God, it would be John that later on would be known as the Apostle of Love. And these two brothers came to Jesus wanting to ask him a favor, wanting something from him. And we know from Matthew's account of this story that it was James and John who persuaded their mom to come and talk to Jesus. She was being a good mom. I mean, she only wanted what was best for her two sons here. So they persuaded her, Mom, can you go and actually ask Jesus this special favor for your two sons, which Matthew tells us when she came, she worshipped him and then asked him that special favor that we're going to see here very shortly. But I want to just stop and pause because I just wonder, I just wonder that if our worship at times doesn't fall into that category, if our worship at time doesn't fall into, Lord, I'm going to come and worship you because I want a big favor from you, God. I want to get something from you. And we, so we try to butter God up, and we need to realize that God can see right through that. Matter of fact, he knows our hearts better than we know our hearts. And besides, I mean, think about this. I mean, we know when somebody comes along, moms, you know when the kids come along. And they begin to butter you up. And you know, here comes a big favorite that they want to ask. All of us know that we know that person that perhaps at work or neighbor or other family members that, you know, they want something. They'll come and, and they'll be nice to you and they'll begin to, you know, kind of uh, butter you up. And you're sitting there going, okay, here it comes. They're going to ask a big favor. And so if we can see through that kind of motivation in people's lives, the Lord certainly does know what our motives are for coming to him, the Lord who truly is the only one that knows the hearts of men. When we come to him in worship, it's not so that we can get something. It's so that we can give to him of our honor and our praise, and we need to remember that. He's deserving of our worship. It is expressing with our hearts and our voices, Lord, you are good and you are gracious and you're loving and you're awesome. You're worthy and deserving of my worship. And so oftentimes we can make the mistake of coming and worshiping and hoping that we can kind of soften up the Lord before we ask for something, for some special blessing. And so James and John, they talked their mother into asking for this honor, privilege status, as verse 36, and he said to them, what do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, grant us that we may sit, one on your right hand and the other on your left, in your glory. 
my sons want to be on your left and on your right. In other words, James and John were asking for positions of high status, very high status. And I believe that this is a continuation of a topic among the disciples that started back in chapter 9, as we saw, and that was, who is going to be the greatest? They're ex still expecting the Lord at this time is going to usher in the kingdom of God. And so these two brothers thought that they better get their request in first. Hey, we want to be the ones in position of status and power and prominence and glory. And Jesus, in his patience, he does not rebuke them. He doesn't say, what is the matter with you guys? But he answers. In verse 38, you do not know what you ask. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink and be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with? You guys really don't comprehend what it is that you're asking. Didn't I just get through telling you, as we ended last week in verses 33 and 34, Jesus explaining to his disciples as they're getting closer to Jerusalem that when I do get to Jerusalem, I'm going to be betrayed. Handed over to the chief priests and elders. I'm going to be handed over to the Romans. And I'm going to be beaten. I'm going to be mocked. I'm going to be spit on. I'm going to be put to death. And when Jesus says, are you able to drink from the cup that I drink from? Be baptized with the baptism that I'm baptized with. He is speaking of his death. He's talking about going to the cross. It's the cup of death, the baptism of suffering. These two brothers still not fully understanding what it means to be great in the kingdom. Jesus saying, yes, I'm going to be restored to glory. But first I must die for the sins of the world. Are you able to drink the cup of death and the baptism of suffering and so they said to him we are able i really believe they don't understand what jesus is saying and the reason i do is because jesus said you don't know what you ask but they're so focused on glory and self they don't know what it means to sacrifice they don't understand the cost they were ignorant of what they were asking the cost and the price of what they're desiring. Jesus says, this is the price of glory. Are you ready to pay for it? And look at the self-confidence that they express. Sure, Lord, we're able. Come on, bring it on, whatever. We're able to take it. So Jesus said to them in verse 39, you will indeed drink of the cup that I drink, and with the baptism that I am baptized with, you will be baptized. But to sit on my right hand and on my left is not mine to give, but it is for those to whom it is prepared. Notice how Jesus replies to these two brothers. He doesn't try to explain in detail what is going to happen with them. He just says, you will indeed, you're going to experience suffering and death. You want to drink the, of my cup and be baptized with my baptism? You shall. And as it would turn out, both James and John took the cup and were baptized. That is, they were immersed in suffering. But it would be in different ways. James would be the first of the apostles to be martyred. We read about that in Acts chapter 12. James was taken and he was murdered, beheaded by Herod. John would be the last of the apostles to die. Matter of fact, John, it is believed by church history, would live to be close to 100 years old. He would end, have his life ended probably about 35 to 40 years after Paul the apostle. Now, we're not exactly sure how John died, but there's some references in church tradition and church history that says that John was placed actually into a pot of boiling oil by the emperor of Rome, trying to get rid of him. 
if we can get rid of this last living apostle, then this thing, Christianity, is going to die out. So they tried to boil him in oil, and some historians say that that's the way that John died. Most have suggested that he survived that attempt to kill him, obviously a miracle of the Lord, and when the boiling oil didn't kill him, then what the Romans did is they exiled him to the island of Patmos, where, of course, he would receive the revelation of Jesus Christ, that last book of the Bible. But John experienced much suffering and punishment for the Lord's sake as well. We want to sit on your right and on your left. Jesus saying, you guys don't know what that entails. You don't understand what you're asking. Are you willing to suffer for my sake? There are times in our lives where we can ask God for something and we don't always understand what it is that we're asking. We don't always understand what the cost is and what the sacrifice is. We only think about the glory perhaps how it benefits me, how it's going to make me known. We can cry out. We can say, Lord, use me. I want to be used in a very powerful way. I want to do missions in parts of the world. I, I want to preach. Hopefully someday I'll be like Billy Graham or like Greg Laurie. I want a powerful, dynamic ministry, Lord. But we don't understand what the cost is and what the sacrifice that comes when serving the Lord. There can be much pain There can come with, with serving the Lord. And I don't mean to sound discouraging, but it's the truth. And there's something else that will happen for any of us that desire to serve the Lord and be committed to serving the Lord in any way. That there's going to be a breaking that the Lord will do with us. He desires to do that breaking, to bring us to that place of humility and submission and relying on him. And I know I've quoted A.W. Tozer before, but it's true what he says. Before a man is used greatly, he's going to be broken deeply. And you may not be put into a pot of boiling oil like John was. Or you may not have your head lopped off as James did. But if you desire to serve the Lord and you say, Lord, that's what I want to do, there's going to be a breaking that's going to take place in your life. And there will be trials and there will be difficult times, but so often we want to focus on the attention. And we want to focus on the glory. And we want to focus on the status and whatever it might mean. And in a sense, what I hear James and John saying here, Lord, we want this favor because we deserve it. I think that perhaps that may have been their motive. That's what they're thinking in their hearts. We've been walking with you for about three years now, and you have shown us, James and me, that we're in your inner circle because you have singled us out along with, what's his name over there? Oh, yeah, Peter. To see some special miracles. So we know that we're your favorites, Lord. So we think that we should be at your rights and on your left when you come in your glory. And I suspect that was the attitude of their hearts. That's what they were thinking. Once in a while, I've had people come to me and tell me, well, I think I deserve this ministry. I deserve this title. I deserve, you know, this, this special place in, in serving the Lord. And whenever I hear somebody say that or have that mindset, I wonder, do you really have a servant's heart? Do you have a humble spirit? When you begin to talk about what it is that you deserve when it comes to serving the Lord, when it comes to the things of the Lord. Because Jesus has told us that if we want to be first, we must be last. That being great means you're the servant of all. Being in ministry means to be a servant. That's what the word ministry means. 
So service ministry is done in humility. It's washing feet. It's changing dirty diapers in the nursery. It's helping somebody out whose car is broken down. It's praying for a brother and sister who is hurting. It's picking up the trash and the beer bottles out in the parking lot that was left there from Saturday night on Sunday mornings before the service starts. It's cleaning. It's doing all kinds of simple tasks, practical things for people. But please don't think that you deserve ministry. None of us do. I'll tell you what we do deserve. Because the scripture says that the wages of sin is death. What we have earned, the wages is sin, is eternal separation from God. That's what you and I deserve. But because of grace, the unmerited favor of God, and Jesus going to the cross for you and for me and paying the price for my sins, I know that I'm forgiven. I know that I am loved by you, Lord, because you demonstrate your love by while we were yet sinners. Christ died for us, and I belong to you. And it's an honor and a privilege, a privilege opportunity to serve you, Lord. And I serve you not to get glory because the glory belongs to you, Lord. And as Isaiah the prophet said, that he will not share his glory with any man or any woman. I'm not there just to be seen, not for prestige, but I come in humility and openness to what you want to do in my life, Lord. And if it's cleaning, if it's handing out bulletins, if it's ministering to children, if it's praying for people, making meals, if it's teaching a Bible study, then praise God and thank you, Lord. Thank you that you would want to use somebody like me. And Lord, you teach me and you break me to do what you want to do in my life. And that is the heart and the attitude that the Lord loves and blesses. But don't think that you deserve ministry or I deserve this title or this thing. I do not deserve to be the pastor of this church. It is only by his mercy and by his grace that I'm even up here. And being the pastor of this flock means that I am to be the servant of all, that I am the least so James and John, they did drink of that cup. They were baptized in suffering. But Jesus goes on to say, but whoever sits on my right and left hand is for those whom it is prepared for. Matthew records that Jesus says, it shall be given to them for whom it is prepared of my Father. It is the Father who will determine who sits at my right and on my left. It's not for me to give. In verse 41, when the ten heard it, they began to be greatly displeased with James and John. Now, why were the other ten disciples upset with James and John? Was it because they were thinking, how could you two ask for such a thing? I mean, here's Jesus. He just got through telling us that he's going to go to Jerusalem. He's going to suffer and die. And, and here you guys are only thinking about yourself. How insensitive can you be? You think that perhaps they were upset at James and John because of that? I don't think that they were. I think that they were displeased with James and John because they didn't think of it first. That they didn't think, oh man, here's James and John, they're trying to get the good seats in heaven and we didn't have a chance to do that. You know how it plays out in the world, at the workplace, for example. People get upset with a co-worker because he's trying to get in with the boss and that's not fair and everybody else is upset with them. And here are the other ten. They're saying, hey, James and John, get back here. You can't do that. And having your mom ask for the favor, oh, how could you do that? You're trying to leave us out of the goods. They were thinking of themselves, perhaps. They were looking out for their own interests. 
But Jesus called them to himself in verse 42 and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers over the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. Yet it shall not be so among you. But whoever desires to become great among you, you shall be, you shall be your servant. And whoever of you desires to be first shall be slave of all. For even a son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus here again describing what true greatness is. It is being great in the kingdom. It's not about money, status, popularity, prestige. It's not about how many serve you. That's the way of the world. It's the way of the Gentiles. The way of the world is concerned about status and titles and power. That's what the world tells us. It's how the world describes greatness. That's what our flesh wants to do. We want to lord over others. We want to tell others to go here and do this and that. And Jesus says, it shall not be among you. If you want to be great, if you want to be first, then you become the servant of all. You become a true servant in God's eyes. And of course, Jesus didn't just teach this. He lived it. He said, I didn't come to be served, but be the servant of all, to lay down my life as a ransom for many. I know that I have mentioned this before, but I think it's worth repeating. It's worth us considering this morning because I think this is so extremely important. And how I pray that our hearts this morning would just be soft and, and honest before the Lord and with ourselves as we talk about being a servant, we like to use that term, I'm a servant. We like to talk about servanthood in the church as a popular term. But are you, am I, are we really servants? And how we can determine if we are really servants in God's eyes is how do you react when people start treating you like a servant? Go there. Can you do this? Can you get this? And they may not thank you. They may not notice you, exalt you. But you're just kind of feeling, man, uh, I'm slaving in this ministry, in the children's ministry, in the nursery with the youth or with this Bible study. I'm serving in the church and no one seems to notice me. No one seems to show appreciation. That reveals a lot to me, I know, and it should to all of us, whether or not am I really being a minister, a servant, a good servant that will do his work effectively, but perhaps is not being noticed, not acknowledged in the room. You see, that was the the way of a servant back in Jesus' day. If he or she was, she was servant, you know, you think of the Gentiles, the Romans in Jesus' day. They had servants. The servant who served those in authority would serve effectively. They didn't serve to get noticed or acknowledged by those that he serves, but goes about his duties graciously and carefully and quietly. That was a sign of a good servant, an effective servant. Now, don't misunderstand me. I am not advocating slavery. But what I am saying that that was a good slave, a good servant who served well, effectively, without expecting or desiring, looking for honor. And you see, this can be a tough one for us, can it? It can be a tough one for me. Yes, Lord, I want to be a servant. I just want to serve you. And I do want to say this. On the other side of the spectrum is, in the body of Christ, we are to encourage those who are serving the Lord. 
And don't forget that because there are times where we become discouraged. There are times where it's hard and it should be other brothers and sisters that come around you during that time and say, don't quit. Keep serving the Lord. You're making a difference. Just trust in the Lord. I know that I need that at times. There are times where I feel like, Lord, I'm just doing no good. I, I feel like I'm getting nowhere. This is very difficult, and I have people around me who will encourage me, who will all of a sudden the Lord will bring somebody who gives me a word of encouragement. I'll get a phone call, like I did this week from somebody I'd never met from up in Wyoming, heard us on the radio. And he's weeping on the phone saying, I heard your Bible study. I just happened to turn on Grace FM and I never listened to it and I turned it on and all of a sudden you were on the Bible study and, and you were talking about turning away from those things that are causing sin and hurting your life and turning to Jesus and I know I need to do that. And you realize that, Lord, thanks for the encouragement and that's what we're to do with one another because we can get discouraged. But if we come desiring to serve the Lord and, and thinking, as long as people notice me, I'll do it. As long as I can do what I want to do in the way that I want to do it, as long as I get recognized, I want to be the servant of the month. I want to have a picture of me hanging up in the foyer, have my own parking space for the month. Then we're missing it. And you know what? You won't last. You won't last. Jesus says that the path to greatness is the path of humility, learning to be truly a servant, the servant of all. And the Lord is not saying to us this morning, learn to be a servant so you can be miserable. He says, learn to be a servant of all because that's the way the kingdom, and it will prepare you for the kingdom. Ministry is done to benefit those that you minister to, not for the benefit of the minister. And I try to teach that to people who really want to minister to others, who really want to go into ministry and dedicate their lives to ministry. It isn't to benefit you, it's to benefit others. And too often people are in the ministry for what they can receive, either materially or emotionally. What can I get from people instead of what can I give? And when we become believers in Christ Jesus, it's a whole new way of thinking and living and doing, isn't it? So we have seen over the last couple chapters over the last couple of weeks that jesus talking about greatness if you want to be great listen guys you who are arguing to be the greatest then you need to receive a child of my name you receive the little ones you minister and serve those who can do nothing to enhance your prestige your power your career you can do nothing for you but little ones have to be served they need tending and caring you receive them you want to be great then don't cause one of these little ones to stumble you be sensitive don't cause one who's weaker in the faith in your liberty to stumble. You deal with them in sensitivity and you deal with yourself radically. That is, if you have sin in your life, then you need to cut it out. If your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. He's not talking about bodily mutilation. He's talking about deal with your sin, repent from it. You stay away from looking at things that affect you in a negative way, that cause you to sin. You don't walk down that path of temptation. And you have salt in yourselves. You live in purity. You offer the sacrifice of righteousness to the Lord. You live at peace with one another. Jesus said you must become as a child. You receive the kingdom in childlikeness. That is, in simplicity of faith, in simplicity of humility. 
and you continue to walk in that manner. And if you want to be great, then get rid of those things that dominate your life. That's what he told the rich young rulers we saw last week. Get rid of those things that are dominating, ruling, having priority in your life over your relationship with the Lord. Let it go. And you pick up your cross and you follow after me. Then you're going to have treasures in heaven. You want to be the chief. You want to be the ruler. You want to be the head. You want to be first and be last. Be the servant of all. And what you do in word or deed, deed, do all to the glory of God. It would be the apostle that would write, Paul in Philippians, let you, nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in loneliness of mind let esteem others better than himself. And you look out not only for your own interests, but for the interests of others. You do all things without murmuring and complaining. And most of all, most of all, the Lord tells us that you love one another. And it doesn't come easy. It doesn't just happen. It's a work of God's Spirit in our lives, working in our hearts. That love, that humility, that kindness, that compassion. And we can't do it in our flesh because our flesh rebels against that kind of thinking and living. It has to be a God working and breaking as we just yield to Him, rest in Him, and abide in Him. You learn to be great in the kingdom. You learn to be a servant. And Jesus was the Picture the model of the perfect servant, the creator of the universe, the king of all kings, the lord of all lords, the one who had the right to authority, came not to be served, but to serve. He never asked his disciples to do anything that he wasn't willing to do, which he didn't show them how to do. Jesus said that a student is not above his teacher, but everyone who is fully trained will be like his teacher. Jesus chose to be with his disciples and they could see the servanthood of jesus and the love of jesus being worked out in his life especially he's got closer to the cross and the reason that i'm spending a little bit of time on this and kind of parking on this a little bit is for a couple reasons what would you think would happen to this place calvary chapel think about it what would happen to this place calvary chapel if we lived in the way that jesus talked about in the way that the Word of God spells out to us how to be great, what would happen if we truly desired to love each other and to serve each other? I really believe that this loving servanthood within the body would captivate other believers and those who are searching to where people would seek us out because love is irresistible. And how I long for the commentary of this fellowship to be that my, how those Christians over at Calvary Chapel, they really love the Lord because it shows how they love each other and how they serve each other. And I'm not just saying this so that we can have a bigger church. But just think of the lives that would be impacted and the witness it would be to others if we lived and thought the way that Jesus has been teaching us over the last couple chapters. And secondly, the second reason I'm parking on this a little bit is because it's my desire as a pastor to hear those words of the Lord say to you, well done, good and faithful servant. Well done. You served out of love. You didn't get distracted. You served out of humility and submission, and you didn't serve just to get noticed, to get recognized. But out of the joy of the Lord, and great is your reward, and here's your place in ministry in heaven. And the thing is, none of us will regret the times that we serve, the difficulties and the trials and the hard days and the discouragement that we felt 
because we thought nobody cared. None of us will regret those times if we're doing it unto the Lord. But we will say, thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord, that you spared me from getting my reward on earth where it would pass away so quickly. Thank you, Lord. That is what the Lord is after. He's not saying, I want to make your life miserable. I want to make your life heavy and discouraged all through your life is what I want you to be. But he's saying, I see things from the perspective of eternity. And if you want to be great, if you want to rule, then you'd need to be a servant, a servant of all. So there you have it. There you have it. How to be great in the kingdom. And so this section ends on greatness, and then suddenly, very quickly, he Mark changes subject, now records for us the story of the blind man, Bartimaeus, in verse 46 in the chapter. Verse 46, now they came to Jericho, and he went out of Jericho with his disciples, and a great multitude, blind Bartimaeus, the son of Timaeus, sat by the road begging. So Jesus and his disciples remember that they're on their way to Jerusalem. They're in Jericho. Now Jericho is only about 20 miles from Jerusalem. Jericho sits down in the Jordan Valley. It's by the Dead Sea. The Dead Sea is about 1,200 feet below sea level. It's the lowest point on the face of the earth geographically. You go to Jerusalem, it's about 800 feet uh, above sea level. So there is a steep climb in these 20 miles from Jericho up to Jerusalem to the Holy City. Remember, Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem for the Passover. Also, there in the Jordan Valley was a ma major trade route. That's where caravans and travelers would come from North Africa over to Asia, uh, over to Europe on their way there. And they would travel through the the Jordan Valley there. Also remember that this is Passover time, and so all the travelers are coming into Jerusalem to Passover, and they would come through the Jordan Valley. So what that meant was that many who were perhaps were blind or had physical infirmities of some sort, they would be all lined up there on those trade routes where travelers were moving through, particularly at this time, asking for alms. And all of a sudden, here's Jesus. He has a great multitude. He's passing by Jericho, and when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, Bartimaeus, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. So no doubt Bartimaeus, he can't see, but he can hear. He hears the crowds going by. He hears all the people, the commotion going on. He probably said, who is this? What's, what's going on? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth is going by. And Bartimaeus thought, I've heard of this man. I've heard of Jesus of Nazareth. That he can heal. He opens the eyes of the blind. This is my chance. And he began to cry out. He begins to yell. He's screaming, Son of David, have mercy on me. And verse 48, then many warned him to be quiet, but he cried out all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. So this man is yelling to Jesus. They tell him to pipe down, but he continues to cry out to the Lord. And as we finish, so Jesus stood still and commanded him to be called. Then they called the blind man, saying to him, Be of good cheer, rise. He is calling you. And throwing aside his garment, he rose and came to Jesus. So Jesus answered and said to him, What do you want me to do for you? And the blind man said to him, Robani, that I may receive my sight. Then Jesus said to him, Go your way. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he received his sight and followed Jesus on the road. I love this short story because contrast Bartimaeus with the rich young ruler we saw last week. The rich young ruler left the Lord sorrowful. Bartimaeus followed the Lord. Luke tells us that he glorified God. Sometimes the people who seem to have the most, they really are sad inside. But for those who realize, hey, Lord, have mercy on me like Bartimaeus, those who follow after the Lord in gladness, 
eternally have riches and blessings. A couple things very quickly this morning that we can make application that we learn from Bartimaeus. First of all, we see that Bartimaeus was, number one, a man of humility for you note-takers. He's a man of humility. He cried out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. He said to Jesus, have mercy on me. Just as we sang that song this morning. What would we have done if we were in his situation? The crowd's passing by. Jesus is in the midst of the crowds. Would we have a tendency to say, Son of David, how come I'm blind? How come I have no sight? How come I'm this way? I don't deserve this. And that can be our tendency. Lord, I deserve better. Complaining and murmuring against the Lord. This man said, have mercy on me because in humility, you see, Bartimaeus, he really wasn't blind, not spiritually. He comes to Jesus in that humility and he cried out, Oh Lord, have mercy on me. And may God give us the wisdom to pray in humility and to approach the Lord in humility. Folks, too much bellyaching going on. That's just my opinion. And I'm on part of that too. The prophet Jeremiah says that it's only of the Lord's mercy that we're not consumed because his compassion fails not. And Bartimaeus, bless his heart, sees a whole lot more than a lot of us do. When he said, Lord, have mercy on me, rather than the Lord, I deserve more. Humility. Remember the tax collector that went to the temple? He would not even raise his head to heaven. And he smote his breast and he said, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. Jesus said that man went away forgiven. And it was the Pharisee that Jesus indicted who claimed to have the right for blessing because of his activities. So not only humility, but secondly, we see Bartimaeus was persistent. Pipe down, they said. He yelled out even more. He cried out all the more. He didn't give up. And in prayer and in ministering our walk with the Lord, this really is a key, being persistent. It was Abraham, after he patiently endured, received the promise given to him. We can have the tendency to let go too quickly and to give up easily. Not so with Bartimaeus. A man of humility, a man of persistence, and thirdly, lastly, he also was a man of expectancy. Mark makes the point of telling us that when Jesus called him, he left his garment. It was a beggar's garment. The world would identify him as a beggar because he had that garment that was there. And when he heard Jesus' voice, he left it behind. He said, I have no need of this anymore. He took the, himself up. He left the garment aside, and he was healed. He came in expectancy to be healed. He came when he heard the voice of Jesus. So I want to close with this. Maybe someone may be here this morning. And maybe you're hearing the voice of the Lord speak to you this morning. You've never given your heart to Jesus Christ. The scripture says that spiritually all of us are blind. that don't know Jesus Christ. And maybe the Lord's speaking to you. And he's saying to you, I love you. And I want to save you and forgive you. And it comes as you come in childlikeness in faith. Surrendering your heart to Jesus Christ, understanding that he's the son of God who died for your sins. There's no other way to salvation. It doesn't come by you trying to be good. It doesn't come by trying to save yourself. You can't save yourself, no matter how good or bad you are. It comes by knowing that Jesus Christ died for every one of your sins. He shed his blood on Calvary's cross because of his love for you. And perhaps he's speaking to you, saying, I want to open up your eyes. You are to repent, leave those things of the world, leave it behind. And you turn to Jesus and you surrender to him. Maybe there might be somebody that's here that maybe you've fallen away from the Lord. Maybe there needs to be a recommitment to Jesus. Maybe you've been involved in the things of the world. 
and you say, Lord, I hear your voice this morning. I need to come to you once again and just cry out to you, Lord, because I've heard you, your voice saying, come. And then thirdly, maybe you're here this morning. Maybe there's something that you're just struggling with, and the Lord is saying, leave it behind. Leave that thing of the world behind, that sin, that attitude, whatever it may be. Because the Lord desires to touch you. You come in expectancy this morning knowing that God wants to work in your heart as well. So, Father, we thank you. We thank you for this time in your word. We thank you, Lord, that Jesus Christ loves us so much, your Son, that he came freely and willingly to die for our sins.